Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. Chinese President Xi Jinping just wrapped up his visit in Saudi Arabia over the weekend. The trip saw him attending the first ever China-Arab State Summit and the China Gulf Cooperation Council Summit held in the Saudi capital Riyadh. Xi said the exchanges between China and Arab states date back more than 2,000 years since the ancient Silk Road in a signed article published in a local newspaper. President Xi also met with his Tunisian counterpart, Kai Saeed, to convey China's firm support in Tunisia, pursuing a development path suited to its national conditions. What topped the agenda at these first ever summits and why do Arab countries need China and vice versa? How will the summits shape China's relationship with countries in the region what does China bring to the region that others don't? I had the pleasure to talk to Hamez Jinawi, former Tunisian foreign minister and founder and president of the Tunisian Council for International Relations. How do you look at the first ever China-Arab state summit? How important do you think it is and, and why do you think uh, the timing is set now? Well, I think it's a very important event, uh, taking into consideration, you know, what is going on now around the world. It's the first time that the Chinese leader meets his counterparts from the Arab world. They have many things to talk about, particularly bilateral relations. And as you know, China is a major partner with the Arab world, uh, trade, trading as well as investment uh, uh, partner, but there are many things also to talk about politics. Uh, the, what is going on in our region? There are a uh, number of uh, regional issues which still not resolved, and China, being uh, a permanent member of the Security Council, has, I think, an important uh, role to play to help you know settling uh, these issues. Uh, there is what is going on now: the war in Ukraine and the impact of that war on the geopolitics but also on the economy. And uh, I think uh, China and uh, the Arab world, they have a common you know, uh, purpose to work together in order to, uh, uh, you know, uh, to have peace you know, in, in that part of the world, but all over the world also. Well, this is the first ever China-Arab State Summit. I know that you participated in the eighth ministerial meeting of China-Arab States Cooperation Forum in 2018. Is this a step higher in bilateral ties? And uh, why is it so important specifically? Just now you mentioned a couple of uh, international geopolitical situation. Uh, why is it so important for China to step up relationship with Arab countries and, and vice versa? Well, I think both parties need, need each other. I mean, with the uh, Gulf uh, Cooperation Council, you know, there is a talk going on almost now for uh, uh, 16 years, you know, about the free trade area uh, with uh, between China and the Gulf uh, countries. And I think it's a good opportunity for them, both of them, to discuss it and maybe finalize it because uh, Minister Wong Yi said later that uh, uh, the, uh, the the agreement is in the final, final stage of uh, conclusion. And I think that's a good opportunity. The Arab 
Arabs, you know, uh, Gulf countries, they are relying mainly on oil export and they are willing now to diversify their economy, uh, uh, increase the trade between China and their countries. It's a very important, uh, China being, you know, an important partner, or almost 330 billion uh, US dollar, you know, the volume of trade between the two parties, uh, but also investment and uh, uh, the the Arab partner uh, are willing to diversify the relation to uh, invite China to invest, you know, in high tech uh, sectors, uh, invest in maritime, you know, uh, sectors by building ports, infrastructure, and I think there is uh, there are many common uh, interests to develop uh, such uh, economic relationship. If you look at a lot of reports, especially from uh, Western media reports, you get the idea that China is trying to take uh, some part away from what used to be uh, a closer relationship between Arab countries with the US-led West. Uh, somehow they're saying China is trying to take that away or it's a zero-sum game. But if you look at relationship between China and Arab countries, as I mentioned in the leading, this relationship dates back 2,000 years. So how, from an Arabic perspective how do you look at uh, the the you know the kind of legitimacy let's say or necessity of china restoring its relationship with arab countries i think uh, i think honestly i don't think uh, the matter is choosing between china and the united states uh, the from the arab perspective uh, i think it's increasing relationship with uh, an older partner china but that that does not mean that the arabs will uh, look, uh, you know, look away from their relationship with the United States. They have also strong relationship, uh, particularly the Gulf countries and even North African countries. They have good uh, substantial relationship with the United States, particularly on economic, but also on security. And I think that will continue uh, from the Arab uh, partner. Uh, so it's not choosing between China and the United States. It's, you know, developing a relationship with one major partner, which is China. Yeah, some people would argue that it is a kind of choice because when you have, for instance, an infrastructure project, whether you give it to a U.S. company or whether you give it to a Chinese company, you, you can only give it to one company. How do you look at that? Well, that's uh, the economy is uh, since we are living in a free world. I mean, countries are competing with each other to gain more, you know, um, part of uh, transactions. So. I think uh, there was, uh, you know, there was a summit between the Arab and Muslim world and the United States in 2017 in, in Riyadh itself. Uh, the same summit also with the Gulf uh, uh, Cooperation Council. They, uh, and uh, in few days, there will be another uh, leader meeting between the United States and Africa. So these things are going on. Uh, and uh, I don't see it as you know, a major, you know, shift from the Arab world towards China. Uh, I think it's increasing uh, relationship with China as an important partner, uh, which will help, you know, uh, you know, keeping peace in the world. But also it's a good opportunity for both parties to develop uh, economic uh, cooperation. In terms of the petrol dollar, which is very much in the discussion, what is your opinion? Is that also in line with this diversification approach that Arab countries are taking? Because again, this is a very much contested issue and uh, Arab, Arab countries are seen to be shifting away from 
a very close relationship uh, with the United States in terms of uh, the uh, denomination of energy. Well, what I can take from the press reports, which I am reading, uh, this has been... uh, uh, you know, subject of talk between Saudi Arabia and China for a number of years now. Uh, I don't think, uh, honestly, that it's about there will be a decision regarding this. Uh, China, um, uh, Saudi Arabia exports 25% of its oil export to China. So it's China being an important partner in this field. Uh, there is an interest from the Chinese partners to use, you know, yuan as uh, as uh, you know as a way uh, to uh, for their uh, ex- imports of uh, oil but uh, the still dollar is an important you know currency it has been there for a number of years since 1974 uh, and i don't think there is there will be a major shift this is my personal opinion you know uh, regarding this in the coming uh, uh, days, but uh, this summit offers a new platform for both parties, Saudis and the Chinese, to continue discussing these issues and maybe look at it in the future. How do you look at the mentality uh, that somehow Arab countries are uh, a kind of U.S. Uh, backyard or former U.S. backyard? So everything China is doing is in the pol- geopolitical sense. How do you look at this kind of mentality? And also when you read these reports, it's uh, always kind of uh, trying to draw a line uh, of ideology or, you know, human rights record. Uh, it's always from these perspectives. How do you look at that? Well, I don't think the, uh, honestly, I think uh, there is a strong historical relationship between the Arab world and the United States for different reasons. Uh, the United States having, you know, uh, playing, uh, played an important role in security of the, uh, particularly in the Gulf countries. Uh, and that uh, goes back to the 70s. I don't think, uh, so there is a strong links between both parties and that link will continue, uh, particularly with what is going on in the Gulf country itself, between Iran and neighboring countries, uh, what is going on in Syria. So there will be always, you know, a talk and relationship with the United States. But there is a will now with what is going on now in uh, in uh, Russia and Ukraine to try and diversify relationship and look to new opportunities from the Arab world. But uh, I think uh, the relationship with the United States continue to be a substantial one. Finally, what can China offer to these regions that the United States cannot? You know, being a neighbor, uh, it can offer more than the United States. It's it's very important that uh, China being an emerging uh, economic uh, superhouse uh, it it can it can you know uh, expand its economic relationship with the with this region. It can help you know develop and improve the infrastructure. It can be a good partner in technology. Uh, uh, they can work together for the what we call the green economy and uh, renewable energy. I think there are plenty of opportunities for both parties to develop, particularly on the economy. Uh, but also on trade, also that's uh, China being an important, I mean, a huge uh, consumer country. It can always uh, continue imports, importing, you know, oil and energy, but also can import other uh, products from the Arab world.
which is still quite limited now. Talking about Tunisia, uh, we have a large deficit, you know, between us and China. So there is a good opportunity for Chinese to look, Chinese party to look to the opportunity of importing more goods from the Arab world. But uh, from the security point of view, I don't think China is uh, the policy, which I understand from uh, what uh, when I read you know, the statement made by China, China is not willing to interfere in local uh, politics, uh, does not uh, interfere in the way these countries are handling their domestic uh, issues. Uh, so uh, there is uh, here a strong basis, you know, for uh, developing the relationship between the two parties. Thank you very much, Mr. Hamais Jinawi, former Tunisian foreign minister and founder and president of the Tunisian Council for International Relations. After the break, how is China optimizing its COVID-19 response and what do we expect from an economic point of view for the world? Stay with me. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. China is further optimizing COVID-19 response with 10 new measures announced last Wednesday. According to the Chinese State Council, the new measures are more science-based and targeted in carrying out nucleic acid testing, home quarantine, and minimum restrictions in high-risk areas. In the meantime, measures vary from city to city. Beijing announced on the same day that entry restrictions to the Chinese capital will be lifted, but strict protection measures are still in place in certain crowded indoor spaces, such as restaurants and places with a concentration of vulnerable groups, such as nursing homes. Why is that? How big is the economy a consideration? And what do we expect for businesses and visitors who have been yearning for cross-border mobility for three long years? I talked to Hu Naijing, Associate Professor of the School of Public Policy and Management at the University of the Chinese Academy of Sciences to get his perspective. Professor Hu, welcome to The Point. Uh, on the evening of December the 7th, Wednesday, the municipality of Beijing gave a very important press conference announcing the latest 10 guidelines guiding Beijing's efforts to fight the COVID-19 pandemic in the foreseeable future. Uh, it re further relaxed certain measures although still keeping some restrictions in place for uh, places that may be overcrowded. But one of the most important and eye-catching item is the announcement that uh, entry restrictions to Beijing will be lifted. People will not be required to show their health code upon entering Beijing, and they don't have to go through three times nuclear acid test over the next three days upon arrival. How do you look at this particular guideline? What is the significance and why uh, announcing it now? Well, I think Beijing's policy is definitely on the foundation of the national uh, new 10 items of guidelines. So it's, it was yesterday, the national uh, mechanism has announced that the national policy has changed. So Beijing will follow up. That's, that's why, that's how it works. So Beijing's new 10 guidelines is on the basis of the national 10 guidelines. So that is quite clear. But it's stricter. It's st slightly more strict 
than yes. the national level guidelines. Yes, Why? I made a little comparisons. Generally speaking, the, the, the nine guidelines are more or less the same, but only, uh, for example, in if you want to eat in in Beijing's restaurant, you still have to show your health code and you still have to scan the health code. But from the national guidelines point of view, there's no such things as this to show health code when you are going to eat in. So I think in some the so-called uh, uh, in in interroom places, Beijing is, in my opinion, have something to consider. Why is Beijing relaxing the entry restrictions? Right now, Beijing, the Beijing situation is the domestic infections within Beijing is more serious than the external input because other cities, a lot of cities and regions are not facing the same situations as Beijing. For example, I have mentioned in Shanghai, there are only several cases a day uh, from social point of, from, from uh, the, uh, the social uh, newly uh, committed. So I think the input pressure is not as it is now inside Beijing. So that's why, be, that, is, that is to say Beijing do not have to have a very strict restrictions of entering in Beijing. Their focus is on what is happening inside Beijing. So that is why I think Beijing has lifted all the restrictions of entry to Beijing. Is there an economic point of view uh, considering you know, the reasons why they're doing this? Because the economy, although over the past five years, China has been able to maintain a reasonably high uh, GDP growth, but the fluctuation has been very hard, very big, especially when Omicron became prevalent. And the economy has been under enormous pressure, especially in certain sectors, such as the tourism, such as uh, restoration, restaurants, I mean. So uh, is there an economic consideration behind this relaxation on travel within Beijing and out of Beijing? Well, I think a, a lot of measures must be taken into consideration. Economic one is, in my opinion, must a priority. In my opinion, more important is the Omicron virus itself. Uh, the death rate, the infections rate, and the people with serious symptoms are much less than its original virus and the Delta virus. That is why China and Beijing can have, uh, in my opinion, uh, much uh, less restricted policies. But in my opinion, from the economics point of view, from generally speaking, the economy in China in the last three years is, in my opinion, not very bad. We had achieved a relatively medium um, growth rate. And from the prospections of the future, we still have an expectation of about four to five percentage of growth of GDP. But that just has, as you have mentioned, some sectors, for example, the flex companies, the traveling sectors, the restaurants and some kind of entertainment sectors were hit very much. And Beijing is famous for its travel and tourism. That is why Beijing, in my opinion, has to uh, lift out all the restrictions of entry to, uh, to attract more people to travel to Beijing, to enjoy the tourism industry in Beijing. What is the implication for the world of uh such kind of initiative. Uh, do you foresee Beijing slowly uh, enlarge the sectors that may be opened? Well, I think it's still very difficult to say 
the exact date that China and Beijing will be completely back to normal and open to the outside because of uh, the uncertainty of the variations of the virus. So I think uh, if we want to have a relatively certain date or signal, we can expect the WHO's announcement because during the last several months, we can see the WHO, in my opinion, is growing very optimistic about the future. Uh, the recent announcement from WHO is showing that we are very close to the data that we can say COVID-19 will not be a global pandemic and a threat to the human being. So I think uh, in the near future, we, on the one hand, we have to say the virus variations trends, whether there will be new trends or new variants that is killing people. And on the other hand, we have to see the new measures of the new guidelines, because the policy will be implemented nationwide. And we will have to see what will be the result. Uh, so I think we, we are not in a hurry to completely open uh, the border to the outside world. We have to wait. But businesses are in a hurry, including domestic businesses who do foreign trade, who needs to travel abroad, and foreign businesses who need to, or foreign visitors in general who want to come to China, who need to come to China, they are in a hurry. So um, what can they expect over the next months, let's say? Uh, when will China really open uh, as, you know, before the pandemic started? Well, I think we, we can't say that we are zero open or we are completely 100% open. We can't uh, select from these two extreme sides. We have to be in the middle way. We have to be cautious and we have to slowly, slowly open. We can't achieve a 100% open in the day's time. But I think in the next half year, we will be more and more open to the outside. Both why basic. not? People would uh, ask, why not open more quickly why not because the economy clearly or at least certain sector has suffered tremendously and unemployment rate especially among young people have been extremely have been very high the infection rate in beijing is still very high we still have thousands of people who are infected every day on the other side yes the death rate the people with serious symptoms rate are going down but it is still a kind of virus. We don't want to be infected. Everybody don't want to be infected. Uh, uh, don't want to be infected. If a majority of people in a certain sector are infected, then this sector will suffer even more. So I think if we can keep a lower infection rate, that is good to a certain sector. We can have a sector to grow and at the same time to have prevention and control measures that have been proved right in the last three years. So I think we shouldn't say that we will make everything like 2020s. Uh, we, we have to be a little more open than it used to be, but we can't be 100% open. And under the situations like this, we have prevention and control. And at the same time, we can have some sectors to develop. For example, the traveling sector, the tourism sector. Looking back, how do you assess the Chinese policies in general from very, very strict, you know, fighting all out with all our efforts to kill the virus, to, to stem the spread of the virus, to a dynamic zero, and now to a softer policy. We don't know the name yet, but still they're trying to keep infection 
as low as possible or keep the the period of time longer that people get infected. Um, looking back at the past three years, how would you evaluate considering the impact on the economy? Well, we can use some words to describe the general situations of China's prevention and control policy. The most important words are scientific and accurate. For example, why, just as you have mentioned, why China has taken softer measures yesterday because of the situations in Guangzhou. And we can say in Guangzhou, there are more than millions of people who are infected. Uh, no, no, not exactly. About 0.16 million people are infected. And in the majority, about more than 90% of them are without any symptoms. So I think under this situation in Guangzhou like this, people can, and China's policy can ch change from the dynamic zero to it is right now. So I think we, we are more scientific. And from the accuracy point of view, as we have mentioned, we used to lock down the whole community last year, if there is a single case in the community. But in this year, from now on, we can only lock down certain level of floors, certain units, we will not lock down the whole community. So I think this kind of progress, we can use the word like scientific and accurate. And in the near future, I think China will become more and more scientific and accurate. And finally, I, I, I don't think there will be a certain date to mark the end of prevention and control. People will come back to normal without any conscience because we are more scientific and accurate. So what, if I asked you, if you can, what is the experience or lesson that can be drawn from the past three years? Well, I, I think there are so many things we can learn from the last three years. But in my opinion, I think we should the most have... Important. The most important thing is from, I would like to say from the supplies point of view, that is to say the healthcare sector. If we compare with UK, the US, European countries, they have this kind of a primary level care and a secondary care uh, level. Uh, but in China, we we have to rely on the hospital level. That is the so-called secondary health care level in these countries to fight against COVID. But our community, uh, the first, the primary care level, the GPs, the general practitioners, are still need to be uh, developed in China. We need to have a very strong grassroots the first level health care prevention and control in the near future before we can deal with the new kind of virus, maybe in the future. All right. Thank you very much, Professor Hu Naijing from the University of Chinese Academy of the Sciences. Thank you. Thank you. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Li Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Li Xin in Beijing. You've got the point.